Well, tonight what we're going to do is we're going to look at, um, at revival and prayer. And then uh, tomorrow, so the, at noon today, we looked at Jonathan Edwards' Revival and World Missions. And then tomorrow what we're going to do at noon is we're going to look at uh, Jonathan Edwards' uh, treatise concerning religious affections, which was written after the sec- uh, First Great Awakening. And so it's very relevant to actually in our thinking about revival, what Edwards did there. And then we'll wrap up tomorrow night with revival and preaching. So if you have a Bible, I hope you do, turn to Isaiah chapter 62. We're going to read two texts from Isaiah, and then we're going to kind of look at some, uh, cha- uh, some passages in the book of Acts as well. But these are our two opening texts, Isaiah chapter 62, starting at verse 6. This is the reading of God's word. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have appointed watchmen all day and all night. They will never keep silent. You who remind the Lord, take no rest for yourselves and give him no rest until he establishes and makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. Then in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as fire kindles the brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things which we did not expect, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. For from days of old they have not heard, nor I perceived by ear, nor has the eye seen a God besides you who acts on behalf of the one who waits for him. Let's pray together and ask for God's help as we think about prayer. Our Father, we come to you tonight, and Father, we certainly recognize that you don't need us, but we desperately need you. And Father, as we come to you, we, we pray that even as the text we just read, that you would work on behalf of those who wait for you. And Father, we ask that your spirit would work in us and ignite in our own hearts, Lord, a desire for, uh, for increased prayer. Father, we know how challenging and difficult prayer can be at times. And so we pray that you would use your word tonight to instill in us a deeper desire to commune with you through prayer, not only as individuals, but also as a church. And Father, we ask that you would use this time to advance your glory here at Northridge Fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen. So, <clears throat> our desire to, uh, to see the work of God in our midst and in our generation and in our own lives, on our families, in our churches, and in our nation, that desire actually has a thermometer. And that thermometer is prayer. 
And so tonight what we're going to do is we're going to take a few minutes and we're going to look at the book of Acts. And we're going to look at Acts for a very specific reason. We're going to see the priority of prayer in the book of Acts. Now, as you read the book of Acts, not everything in the book of Acts is to be reduplicated, all right? And in fact, even those that think you can reduplicate, selectively reduplicate, right? So for instance, um, those that practice um, speaking in tongues, um, they talk about having their own Pentecost, but as far as I know, none of them have had tongues of fire resting on their head or mighty rushing wind. Now, if you live where we live in Nevada, you get mighty rushing wind all the time, but it is, it's not Pentecost. And so we need, to, we need to understand that not everything that's described in, Pentecost, in Acts is something that's, um, that is um, uh, duplicated in the church today, right? So there's a difference between what we would call a descriptive parts of scripture and prescriptive so prescriptive would be that which is actually prescribed for us to follow descriptive is not always um, is not always set forth as an example but there are times when you look at the book of acts that you see the church doing something that actually serves as an example for us to follow And I would say that their commitment to prayer serves as an example for us to follow. And so as you read your Bible, you of course realize that, um, well, we'll put it this way. Was prayer important in the life of the Lord Jesus? Absolutely. In fact, uh, there was um, a time a number of years ago where reading through the Gospels, I was making special note of all the times where Jesus got away to pray. Of course, the Gospel of Luke is filled with those texts of our Lord Jesus going and praying. And in fact, we even have the benefit of knowing the content, the extended content of one of Jesus' prayers. And in fact, one of the most important prayers, at least for our sake, in John 17, what we sometimes call the high priestly prayer. Um, Was prayer important in the life of the Apostle Paul? Absolutely. And you know what's interesting about Paul's prayer life is that not only does he exhort the churches to pray, and and he does so frequently, but he also says that he prays regularly. And in fact, I think that Paul's prayers are are very instructive for us, uh, a, a very worthy study that actually would motivate and encourage uh, us to pray would be to look at the prayers of Paul. There are really two fine books that deal with uh, expositions of Paul's prayers. One is by D.A. Carson called Praying with Paul, A Call to Spiritual Reformation. And the other is a book by Arthur W. Pink called The Ability of God. And that is actually just expositions of Paul's prayers. The reason that that ends up being so important is because we ourselves can get into a rut when it comes to praying, right? We, have you ever found yourself having prayed and then just think to yourself, I think I just said the exact same thing that I said yesterday, which was the exact same thing that I said the day before, which was the exact same thing that I said the day before. 
So paying attention to the prayers in the Bible, especially for Paul, can be instructive for us. And so at times what I'll do is I will take um, one of Paul's prayers and I will um, typically write it out. And then uh, as I pray for my wife, for my kids, for my fellow elders, I will actually take those petitions and pray those petitions for those people, right? Well, you not only have prayer in the life of our Lord and prayer in uh, the life of the Apostle Paul, but if you read the book of Acts, you realize that the church in the book of Acts had a priority set on prayer. And so what I want us to do is I want us to turn over to the book of Acts, and we're going to look at just four examples. We're not going to look at every example of prayer in the book of Acts, or we wouldn't go home until about midnight. But I want you to turn, we'll start in Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. So in Acts chapter 1, starting at verse 12, so the, uh, the, uh, the disciples are in the upper room. They're actually waiting for, uh, Jesus told them to wait there, and so they're waiting and one uh, twelve it says, um, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is near uh, Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is Peter and John and James, Andrew, Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas the son of James. Now notice this. These all, with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And so here we are right at the beginning of the book of Acts. And of course, we think of the Acts of the Apostles. You ever notice the the book would better be named the Acts of Jesus Christ through the Spirit by the Apostles. But of course, that would be too long. So Acts of the Apostles is what we call it. But notice right away, here they are. They pr- they're praying one mind, unity together in prayer as they're doing what? Waiting and watching in Jerusalem as the Lord Jesus had told them. So Jesus tells them that they're to tarry in Jer- Jerusalem until the Spirit comes. And so what did they occupy themselves doing? Well, they occupy themselves by praying together with one mind. Verses uh, 24 and following. So they're going to, they're going to, they need to make an important decision. And they prayed and they said, You, Lord, know the hearts of all men. Show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. Now, this is not uh, to advocate casting lots to make a decision, but what it does show is that here are the apostles, they need to make a vitally important decision. They believe that they need somebody to fill Judas's place, and so what do they do? They actually go to prayer. So the church is about to make a big decision, and they pray. They seek the face of God. Then in Acts chapter 2, 
And verse 42, this is um, the, the aftermath of Peter's Pentecost sermon. Verse 42, it says, They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And so here's the early church, and notice the language. They were continually devoting themselves to these things. They were listening to the apostles teach the word of God. They were absolutely devoted to fellowship, to breaking bread. That is having probably agape meals together. And they were continually devoted to prayer. And so as we look in the book of Acts, we see that the early church is doing what? They're praying, and they're praying regularly. One last um, demonstration or example, if you will, of the church's priority of prayer is uh, seen, first of all, in Acts 3, in verse 1. Now, this actually sets up uh, the healing of the, of the beggar outside of the temple. But notice this. We might miss it because of the, the, what's the bigger story. But notice, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. Now, a miracle's about to take place, and there's about to be another opportunity for Peter to preach, but don't miss this. Here's uh, here's Peter and John, the two leading apostles, and they had the regular habit of prayer, right? Was going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, was it spectacular? Probably not. Was it pretty ordinary? I'm pretty sure. But guess what? They were devoted to the habit of prayer. One more text on that and then we'll kind of move on is in Acts chapter 6. Of course, this is a, this is a famous passage because you have the first uh, big conflict in the church and then you have the establishing of the diaconate. And then um, you see in Acts chapter 6 and verse 4, so actually back up to verse 3 so you can see the context. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task that is feeding the widows, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so here's the, here's the early apostolic church. They're in Jerusalem. What are they doing? While they wait for the Spirit, they're praying. When they need to make an important decision they're praying prayer ends up being one of the fourfold things that they devote themselves to and even the apostles demonstrate maintaining a habit of prayer okay now i was saved when i was 13 years old and I absolutely, God used, God used, (laughs) God used a living Bible, Catholic edition to awaken me, all right, okay, and so, so would I give somebody a living Bible today? No. Would I give somebody a Catholic edition? Absolutely not, but God uses things in his own way, and, um, and so, but from the time I was 13 and converted, the Bible, reading the Bible every day just became a part of my life. 
And I just love it. But you know what's been hard? Not reading the Bible. Talk about for me. It's actually maintaining the discipline and habit of prayer. To me, that has been a challenge. And yet, if you look at the early church, the early church was devoted to this ordinary means of seeking God's face together. Now, what kind of stuff did they pray? Well, we actually have examples of that as well. So in Acts chapter 4... And this is one of the things that I absolutely love about um, uh, in Scripture is when you have a prayer that's recorded, right? And you have lots of them. You had the, the famous three nines, Daniel 9, Ezra 9, Nehemiah 9. Uh, you have Jehoshaphat's prayer, right? You have great prayers in the Bible. Learn from those prayers. And so here are the, uh, here's the early church, and uh, Peter, James, and John have been arrested, and they get released. And verse 23, chapter 4, verse 23, when they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, They lifted up their voices with one accord and said, Oh God, why doesn't everybody love us? Oh no, that's the wrong version, sorry. Oh Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of your father David, your, of our father David, your servant said, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. So in their prayer, they just cite Psalm 2. For truly, verse 27, in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and all the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats. Grant that, their bond, grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Now... We're going to do a little exercise, so I hope that the weather hasn't frozen your brains or your tongues, all right? So, persecution, okay? So, I want you to imagine JT and Mickey get arrested for preaching the gospel, okay? They're taken down to the local jail, and they're beaten, and you know it. And they get released, they're told, stop preaching, they come back, the church is gathered because what are you going to be doing for your pastors if they're in prison or in jail? You're going to hopefully be gathered together to be praying, right? So imagine then, Mickey and JT come walking in, and they're, they're, they're bruised, and they're bleeding, and they're, you, you can tell that they have been just worn down, but they walk in, and they're rejoicing, because they've been counted worthy to suffer 
for the sake of Christ. Now you're going to pray. What would that prayer look like? Oh God, thank you that they're free. We pray that uh, the charges won't stick or, you know. This is how we think. What does the early church do? Right out of the gate, in their prayer, first of all, let's, let's just look at this. So consider this part Sunday school, okay? What do they do? They come back, so Mickey and JT come back, right? Now, I'm not saying you guys are apostles, but you get it, right? And so they come back and they report everything that, that the district attorney and whoever else had said to them. And so when you guys hear this, What happens? Well, in Acts, they do what? Okay, that comes at the end. What's the first thing they do? They praise God. They praise God. And so here, by the way, um, is it likely that your pastors could get arrested? Well, it's becoming more and more likely, isn't it, right? But let's face it, there are things that, um, that we read in the book of Acts that, that probably won't happen to us. But let me, just, let me just remind you, here is an extraordinary event. The apostles have been arrested, they've been beaten, they give a report, and the church goes to prayer, and the very first thing they do is praise God. They actually praise God with the language of Scripture. So they're using God's word to, in a sense, pray back to God, offer praise to God, and then they bring Scripture to apply to the situation. So what do they see in terms of, uh, of Pilate and the Gentiles? And what do they see in terms of this persecution? They see Psalm 2. The enemies of God raging against the Lord. And then they turn around and after citing scripture, they turn around, point to Jesus, and then what else do they do in the prayer? They acknowledge something. Verse 28. They acknowledge that God is absolutely sovereign over everything, including their suffering. Lord, take note of their threats, right? Is that legitimate? Take note of their threats. You better believe it is. And then grant that we may turn around and speak the word with confidence. Why? Because the persecution could have led to them becoming timid and what they wanted to make sure is that they maintain their boldness and so what do they do? They recognize the sovereignty of God, turn around and pray, let us continue to speak the word with boldness, continue to demonstrate your power and as they pray, the place is shaken and then they go out and they all speak the word with boldness. That was the content of their prayer. And so is that instructive for us as the church as we gather to pray? And the answer is absolutely yes. Our prayers should be absolutely filled with with praise and worship to God. Our 
prayers should be filled with scripture. Our prayers should be filled with the character of God, who he is, what he does. Our prayers should be, should be filled with petition that we would be bold in our witness and, and confident that God's going to answer those prayers. The building's not going to shake in all likelihood. But this is just an ordinary prayer. You understand that, right? You can pray prayers just like that. And so the church, was, uh, the church was committed to prayer. The church gives us, we see an example. And so what are the implications of the early church's commitment to prayer? First of all, they were strengthened to face opposition and persecution. A praying church is, is being equipped as they pray to face persecution and opposition. Now, I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but with the way things are going in our country and with the, the church, uh, Christianity in particular, all right, having more and more hostility, more and more opposition, is it possible that within our lifetime we may be facing a hostility and opposition and even a persecution in this nation unlike anything we've ever seen since its inception? And the answer is yes, of course that's true. And what are the churches, by the way, this is just, this is just a footnote, but I think that in 2020 that was a test run. Which churches are going to stand? The ones that are already praying. By the way, if you wait until the crisis gets there and then start praying, you're going to be a day late and a dollar short. You have to be praying all along. And so the, 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 the church in the book of Acts was, was empowered to endure hostility, opposition, and even persecution because they were a praying church. The second implication that we see is they see the success of the word go forth with power and there's a, there is an inviolable connection in the book of Acts between prayer and the power of the word, all right? And it, there are so many passages in Acts where that connection is clear. In fact, if you look at uh, uh, Acts chapter 2 again in verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to breaking the bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Many signs and wonders were taking place through the apostles, and all those who had believed were together, had all things in common, and they began selling their property, possessions, and were sharing all uh, as anyone might have need, day by day, with one mind in the temple, um, breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together, gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved 
And so there's this, there is this sense is there the church is committed to the apostles teaching, the apostles are preaching, the church is praying, and what is God doing? There is a sense of his presence, there's a sense of awe, there is a sense of joy. People are taking notice. Now, now make no mistake about it, people are not rushing in to join the church. And in fact, in Acts chapter 5, people will continue to have awe, but nobody wants to join a church where liars get struck dead right in front of the church, right? So, by the way, the people that always say, oh, I wish we could go back to the days of, of, of the book of Acts uh, in, in church again, I say, really? You want to have like the offering being taken and then some guy dropping dead and his wife's out spending the money that they kept for themselves. She's out shopping. She comes back in for the evening service and then she drops dead too. Oh, for the days of the book of Acts. The word of God was empowered by the prayers of of God's people. And so then the, uh, another implication is they saw the powerful hand of God at work opening doors and answering prayer. You see this over and over and over again. I would just I would encourage it. The book of Acts is only 28 chapters. Read through it in uh, try it in one sitting and just notice every time they prayed how those prayers were answered. Now here's here's the great thing is that the early church the they're just ordinary people. So Acts chapter 12, Peter ends up getting arrested and put into prison. And so what does the church do? The church goes and starts praying. How do they start praying? What do you think the church is praying? Do you think they're praying that Peter would be released? The answer is, of course, they're praying that Peter would be released. And then God actually sends an angel pokes Peter, puts the guard to sleep, miraculously opens the door. Peter goes, oh, I guess this isn't a vision. And he makes his way to the church prayer meeting and he knocks on the door as the church is praying, oh God, please release Peter from prison. We miss our pastor. And Peter's knocking on the door and they send Rhoda, the the, the servant girl, go see who's knocking at the door. She looks through the little peephole. There's Peter. And she's so surprised that she runs back and she goes Peter's at the front door now Peter's of course looking over his shoulder because he knows soldiers are going to be coming any second and he's like what's taking them so long they must be Baptists having a potluck this is taking forever and so so they look at Rhoda and she says Peter's at the front door and you know what they say you've seen a ghost okay I want to just say that Bad theology can creep in like really quickly, right? So here they are praying for Peter's release. God releases Peter. Rhoda tells him Peter's at the front door and they're like, uh, you're, you, you saw a ghost. <laughs> and so Peter knocks harder. And then he comes in and reports to them the great things that God had done. So when the church prays, we should actually not be surprised when God answers our prayers. We have a dear lady in our church. She's from England. She is, she is a beautiful saint. Her son, she had twin sons. One of them died a year or two ago and 
Then we found out that her other son had gone to the hospital with pneumonia and everything started just to fall apart for him. He's in his probably his late 50s and they had to put him into a coma and put him on a ventilator and it looked as, as bad as it could be. And so what does the church do? We pray for Chris every Every time I went to the hospital, prayed with the family, prayed for Chris. That's what the church does. They do an MRI on him and see there's no brain activity. And so now the family has to decide what to do. And everybody in the family thinks, you know what? No brain activity the machine is breathing for him. Let's just take him off the ventilator and let him go. The wife says, no, I don't want to. And of course, the rest of the family is thinking, okay, well, we understand that, right? I mean, nobody wants to, to quote, pull the plug. And she says, no, I don't think that we should, that we should take him off the ventilator. And so we continue to pray. Now at that point, what we're praying is that the God would give wisdom to the family to make a hard decision, right? Well, the next day he wakes up. The next day he wakes up. Now he's still in bad shape and he still may not make it, but I will tell you, what has the church been doing? The church has been praying, Lord, we ask that you would heal Chris. We pray that you would, right? We've been asking all of these things and, and, As we read the report at prayer meeting last week, Chris woke up. We're like, wow, (laughs) that's amazing. And I want to say, wow, that's amazing. But what I really want to say is, wow, that is an amazing answer to prayer. And so the church should actually be asking big things of God and the church should be praying and the church should have an expectancy. And so there is this... There, there is a sense in which you see in the book of Acts God's hand mightily at work through the prayers of his people. Understand this, that prayer is a means by which God accomplishes his purposes. God answers prayer and he answers prayer in all different kinds of ways for all different reasons. But one of the things that comes back to us again and again and again is that when God answers the prayers of his people, we fall down in a, with a sense of gratitude and awe that our God is a prayer hearing, prayer answering God and sometimes we're as flabbergasted as the as the church in Acts chapter 12 like well that can't be Peter he's in prison aren't you praying for his release and so God God uses the prayers of his people to accomplish his purposes so on Friday mornings in, in Minden at the church building and then up in uh, Carson, um, we have a group of men that meet at six in the morning in both places. And usually there's about eight of us, six of us right in there. Sometimes 
there's only three of us. And you know, I never, I never think to myself, oh my goodness, there's only three of us. What a waste of time. I think what we're doing right now, right here in this hour, may seem completely insignificant in the eyes of the world. What these three guys gathering together to pray may actually seem even insignificant in the overall scope of the ministry of the church, but what we do in that time actually is very significant. It's incredibly important. There is no such thing as an insignificant prayer meeting. Because there's no such thing as an insignificant prayer. And so here's the early church that gives us this beautiful example. And so what is the application for us? Well, first of all, and this is obvious, the church must be a praying church. It used to be common that churches would have midweek prayer meetings, right? That was common. Um, Even Spurgeon's Metropolitan Tabernacle would have a midweek prayer meeting. Spurgeon would give a very short address, maybe about 15, 20 minutes on some topic, and then the church would go to prayer. The the idea of a church prayer meeting uh, has, has often been part and parcel of the church's life together. And so it doesn't have to be midweek, but the church has always been committed to prayer. But you know what has happened? Just as sure as um, we sort of reduce the number of services that we have, it seems that in many places, the church prayer meeting has disappeared. Okay, prayer meetings are not all that exciting, all right? Every once in a while, you come away from prayer, so we, we, we'll do different things, and, and right now, we're, we're, we, I'll tell you about it at the end, but there's a, a wonderful sense, but, but prayer's hard work, and then, you know, you're praying with other people, and you never know what somebody's going to say during prayer meeting, <laughs> right? Um, I could tell you some stories that, you know, and not only about prayer requests, but actual people getting up to pray and saying things. You're like, oh, Lord, right? There's nothing spectacular. There's nothing romantic. There's nothing that is glorious about the church getting together to pray. But the church prayer meeting is the lifeblood of the church. When, and, and it doesn't matter whether it's small groups like our men's group or um, what we do on Wednesday nights or what we do in terms of concerts of prayer um, on a, a quarterly basis in Sunday school. Corporate prayer is the lifeblood of the church. And it's one of the most ordinary things that we can do. And yet, it's one of the most significant things that we do. And so, 
You look at the church in the book of Acts and you say, okay, the church must be a praying church. And so we, we, we don't want to, um, we don't want to marginalize or, or diminish corporate prayer in the life of the church. The church must be a praying church. By the way, the church will not be a praying church unless it's made up of praying people. That's not hard, right? If you're, if you're by the way, who, who doesn't go to prayer meeting? Well, people who don't usually pray. And so this is the lifeblood of the church, but here's the glorious thing about it, is that God often moves his people to pray when he is about to move. Jonathan Edwards has this beautiful statement that, that, when, that, when, um, that when he is about to move, he sets his people praying so that prayer moves his hand. Right? So, so the, the picture is a sovereign God who is about to act, and what does he do? He puts it upon his people to pray, and sometimes to pray in, in, in really wonderful ways, a sense of his presence, sometimes just ordinary ways, but he sets his people praying when he is about to move. And so what does that mean? That means that on the one hand, yeah, we're committed to the, to the habit of prayer. We're committed to the discipline of prayer. We're committed to individual individual private prayer we're committed to corporate prayer but we also turn around and we pray that God would pour out upon us the spirit of grace and supplication this is the very prayer that we have stated for us in Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10 where God actually says, I will pour out on the house of David and the house of Israel the spirit of grace and supplication and then they will look upon him whom they have pierced and they will mourn over him as one mourns over a firstborn. And so we can pray, Lord, pour out upon us the spirit of grace and supplication what does that look like you go well you're praying to actually ask God to help you pray I pray that all the time Lord help me to pray but pour out on me that spirit of supplication so that I may that I may not pray prayerless prayers but that I may pray and so this is this is the old Puritan dictum and that is you pray until you pray. Spurgeon says this. He says, When saints are all alive an instant in prayer, it is the index and token that the Lord will open the windows of heaven and pour them out such a blessing that they shall not have room enough to receive it. Have you a mind for great grace and great enterprises, or do you prefer to slacken? If God gives, us, gives all of us to travail, we shall see greater things than these. And so, it comes right down to, do we believe that God has ordained prayer as a means through which he will mightily work? It's absolutely amazing to me, and it shouldn't be, 
But it is, it is amazing that every time I commit myself to pray about something, something happens. Now, I'm not talking about some of the crazy stuff that I've heard, like um, I was at a conference one time and a very popular speaker who's kind of gone off the rails was talking about his prayer life and he walks into a golf shop and he sees a, this really nice brand new driver that's about $500. He's like, oh Lord, I really want that driver, but I know I shouldn't spend the money, so Lord, I just give it to you. And then the next day, some guy walks in and says, hey, I was thinking about you, and I bought you this driver. And he's like, oh, praise the Lord. Okay, I'm not talking about like silly, inane stuff like that. Okay? I'm talking about having a wayward son and having you and your wife on the couch and on your knees weeping and pleading with the God of heaven to please. You have to do what nobody else can. And then to get a call from that son, Mom and Dad, I need to come and talk to you. I'm so sorry. God loves to answer the prayers of his people. There were times, so I'm, 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 I'm more of an introvert, okay? And um, when I get on a plane, I just, I just want to read my book and be left alone. And... I felt guilty about it, and so I started praying, Lord, give me somebody to talk to on the plane. And guess what? The guy sits next to me and says, what do you do? <laughs> I'm a pastor. I'm a Baptist pastor. Now, most, most of the time you throw Baptists in, then they don't want to talk to you. They're like, oh, okay, right? But you start praying, and you start praying these things, and God starts to answer prayer, right? God starts to answer prayer in remarkable ways. You start to pray, Lord, give me opportunity with my neighbor. All of a sudden, guess what happens? Opportunities with your neighbor starts coming. In other words, the church needs to be committed to prayer because God answers prayer. And so I can't help but to think of James chapter 4 and verse 2. You have not because you ask not. And so what should we pray? We can pray for all kinds of stuff. You've got people in your congregation that are sick. Pray for them. Okay. You've got people in your congregation that are having a hard time financially. Pray for them. But let your prayers primarily be driven by the massive scriptural concerns that are unfolded for us. Okay? There's nothing that's too small to ask for God, okay? So when my kids were little, my son, my youngest son, Alex, had a cat named Tango. Tango ran away. We live very close to hundreds of acres of BLM land. I'm thinking Tango is coyote bait. And so every night, Alex is praying, Lord, bring Tango home. And so I'm thinking to myself, okay, this is, this is tough. I'm going to have to explain to him Tango was probably eaten by a coyote. And so months go by, and every night, Alex is like, Lord, please. 
please bring Tango home. And of course, your heart's kind of going out to the little guy. He just wants his little orange furry cat to come home. And so one night during the summertime, we're praying and Alex, while he's praying, and this is no joke, Alex, while he's praying, says, Lord, would you please bring Tango home? And all of a sudden, my, my other son, who's older than Alex, says, Dad, look, there's Tango. And I have my eyes closed because we're praying. And I said, shut up, Zach. That's not funny. (laughs) And in walked Tango. We couldn't believe it. And do you know, here's Alex, he's a grown man, 27 years old. Guess what he remembers? He remembers the time I was praying for Tango and God brought Tango home. So there are no requests that are too small, right? But what about this? Pray that God would be mighty to save right here in Jerome right here in your neighborhoods your neighbors your friends maybe even your family pray actually big bold prayers that God would be mighty to save do you ever have unconverted people come to church the answer is of course you do Pray, God, be mighty to save in our worship services. Be mighty to save through our witness. Be mighty to save. Make us bold so that people can hear about your salvation. And so here is the, we come right back to the text that we started with. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That's a prayer. That the mountains might quake at your presence as a fire kindles the brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things which we did not expect, you came down the mountains, the mountains quaked at your presence. And so here's this, here's this imagery. And so what is this imagery about? So this morning we saw this, Edward says, There are so many incentives in Scripture to pray bold prayers. Here's one of them. When you pray, Lord, rend the heavens and come down, what you're praying is that God would actually visit us in a profound way. Come down, descend, visit us. This, by the way, this isn't a prayer for judgment. It isn't a prayer of, of, of imprecation. It is a prayer for radical, powerful, demonstrable intervention by God. Understand this. What is prayer? Prayer is you actually breathing out absolute, utter dependence upon the living God. When we are praying, what we're doing is that we're expressing things to God that only God can do. And so the spirit of prayer is the spirit of dependence. Oh God, make the mountains quake at your presence. The mountains. So the idea of these immovable permanent symbols of stability God come and be so awesome so powerful do things that we could never expect why not pray like that God pray I pray that you'd save that neighbor of mine 
that we've lived next to for 25 years. The one that has no interest in church, no interest in spiritual things. God, rend the heavens and come down. Do something that we could never expect. And so as the church prays, we should, be, we should pray that the God of heaven and earth would rend those heavens and come down and be mighty to save. And, and, and how often should we pray? Well, we already read that one too. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I've appointed watchmen all day and all night. They will not keep silent. They will not keep silent. You who remind the Lord, take no rest for yourselves. Spurgeon says, I would not have dared to believe that such a saying should be said, okay, remind the Lord, unless I'd seen it in Scripture myself, <laughs> right? Remind the Lord? Does God actually ever forget anything? The answer is no, but that's not the point. The point is, what are you doing? You are the Lord's remembrancer. You are constantly bringing these things to him. And so you you approach. So so, so, um, Isaiah 62 gives us the incentive to approach God in prayer as if we are going to wear him out. Now, of course, it's impossible to wear him out, but you're going to pray as if to wear him out, which means that you're praying often, that you are, that you are aggressively coming to him over and over and over again until he does something. This is a, by the way, this is a, a Luke 18 in the parable of the importunate widow, is it not? Jesus says there was a judge that didn't fear neither God nor man. And there was this widow and she had a case and she came to him day and night. And finally he says that he's just going to answer the widow because he's gonna, she's going to wear him out. And Jesus says, you got to pray and not faint. Keep praying, keep praying, keep praying, nagging, nagging, nagging. So when my kids were little, there was one thing that I hated above, above everything else, and that was when they nagged me. I don't know about you, but man, nagging would drive me crazy. They would start to nag, and I said, you ask me that one more time, you'll never see the light of day, right? I mean, that's... That, so. So there were times where, where they would just nag and nag. And so early on, my, my office was, was in our house. And, and they knew that it was, it was if, if those doors were closed and they came bursting in, that might be cause for capital punishment. Don't interrupt me. I'm busy. Don't nag me. It irritates me. Do you know our Heavenly Father is never irritated by us nagging Him? He invites us. Bother me. Nag me. Try to wear me out. My door's never closed. I never get upset when you come bursting in to the throne of grace. And so the, the incentive is I'm going to give him no rest and I'm not going to take any rest for myself until God does what he has promised to do. You take, you take those promises 
You take your heartfelt petitions, your heartfelt requests, and you go and storm the throne of grace again and again and again, and you don't give up. We had a lady in our church years ago. She's a wonderful, wonderful, beautiful, godly woman. And she was married to about the meanest man I ever met. He was, a, he was a rodeo man. He was a calf roper. He was a hard drinker. And he was an abusive husband. And their kids, who were all grown by that time, all had nothing but terrible memories of an abrasive, harsh, abusive father. And this wonderful sister came in to see me one day. She'd been coming to the church maybe for about five years or so. She was teaching Sunday school, very involved. And um, she, she's a southern belle. And she said, Brian, my life with my husband for 35 years now has been the worst trial the worst tribulation of my life but I don't give up now I'm not saying anything about what happens when you're in an abusive relationship and is it okay to leave you 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 deal with your pastors you keep yourself safe okay all of that so this don't read this illustration wrong okay her kids were grown she stuck with them and what did she do every single day she went to the throne of grace and she'd break his heart humble him save him year after year after year after year They move over to to Tennessee, land of the free, home of the brave. And their grandson, who was in our church, was in a terrible, terrible accident. He was pulling a stock trailer and the cattle started to shift and he lost control of the truck and hit a another truck head-on that was carrying propane tanks. And so his, his grandfather flew out from Tennessee. I went to see this young man in, um, in the burn unit at UC Davis Medical Center in California. And it was unbelievable suffering. And the husband walks in, boy's grandfather, ruffled character. And he says, Brian, thank you for going to see Daniel. He says, I was reading this this morning, and he pulls out of his jeans an old beat-up copy of Spurgeon morning and evening. 
And he says, this is what I read this morning, and it was on the sovereignty of God in calamity. And he looks at me and he says, Brian, God was sovereign over this accident. Can we pray? I'm thinking this guy actually been abducted by aliens and the, the guy in front of me was like an alien imposter. I call his wife. I said, I just met, met with Bill. And she says, Brian... God has heard my prayers. And he is a transformed man. You think you might lose heart year after year? Decade after decade? The answer is it's so easy for us to lose heart. But God says, keep on nagging me. Keep on coming to me. Bother me. Try to wear me out. Wear yourself out. And you never know when I'm going to rend the heavens and come down. And so prayer is one of those ordinary things. It's so routine in so many ways, is it not? And yet what we see is that when God is about to act, He uses the prayers of his people. And so brothers and sisters, in your desire to seek revival, in your desire to to see God move, understand this. The prayer moves the hand of a sovereign God. And so pray. Pray in your closets. Pray as you meet together as a church. But pray as if your life depends on it. Because it does. And so whether God ever comes and does these great and remarkable things that we read of in the past, whether he ever does that or not, let it be said of us that as we, as we went through this journey as a local church, as a family of Christ, that we were a praying people. Let that be your reputation. God is honored when we give him no rest and we plead with him to do only that which he can do. Let's pray. Father, we pray that that truly prayer would be a priority for us. Father, we pray for for those that um, have grown um, maybe slack in prayer. And we pray that you would ignite our hearts to be men and women and even boys and girls who pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of prayer. We thank you that there's power when your people gather together to simply pray. And so, Father, we ask that even in this coming year, that we would find ourselves more devoted to prayer than ever, and that you would be pleased to hear the cries of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.